Hello and welcome to Biting Talk with Two Chicks. I'm William Sitwell, restaurant critic for The Telegraph. Biting Talk is Britain's liveliest food and drink podcast, bringing you a fantastic lineup of talent across the world of eating and sipping week in, week out. And we come at you with two chicks, effortless eggs. That's egg whites, fluffy for your omelettes, cloud-like luxury for your cocktails. Stay tuned for that very thing coming up later with mixologist Farhad Haydari. This week, tantalising your taste buds, we chat with sausage entrepreneur Dickie Keyswick. Dickie loves a banger and he loves booze, so he's put them together in a sausage. Sweet music or a collision in foodie hell. Wait till you meet Dickie. Then, from a food novice, we meet a man celebrating 30 years in the business. That's Eric Yu, whose London restaurants and bars have captivated folk across the decades. A nightclub boss recently recovered from a bad bout of COVID. He's opening his doors and offering free, yes, free food and drink to NHS staff. So if you're a bona fide nurse or doctor, stay tuned. If you think you can blag your way in, this ain't no time for fancy dress shenanigans. Then with COVID restrictions lifting, well, sort of, we speak to the queen of hospitality, the mighty guru of the restaurant, pub and hotel business, Kate Nichols. What's her advice for businesses and consumers as the so-called Freedom Day beckons? But first, it's time to talk a little mad sausage, have some crazy banger chat with banger innovator Dickie Keyswick. Now there's a new product in town. A Bloody Mary, a Prosecco and Apple. The clue might be in this one. A tequila slammer banger. It's the brainchild of a former rugby player, one-time actor, sometime playwright, occasional coffee entrepreneur, and now he's the self-styled head banger of Dickie's Bangers. Dickie Keyswick, welcome to Biting Talk. Thank you very much. That's an amazing intro. What the hell's going on? I mean, booze in sausages? What, a breakfast? What's the idea here, Dickie? To be honest, I hit a point in my life where I was like, the world needs a better sausage. (laughs) And I'm cutting down on a meat... I need a better sausage and uh, I want it to have flavours and, f- and uh, fun. Flavours that I can really taste and enjoy. And I think it was sparked, you know, by having one of those so- apple and cider sausages and going, there's no cider in this. And, uh, and then going home and starting the experiments. And then somehow it snowballed into just a bonkers sausage adventure. <laughs> I mean, I-, I thought you had one should draw the line on... Um you know, sherry and trifle. But you're actually putting booze into these sausages. They're 84% British pork, 9.5% booze. Yeah, the magic number. Where in the supermarket, if you can, uh, if you dare, you know, where will we find them in the shops? Because they've got booze in them. Oh, yeah. Do you know, that is a terrific question. Last year, we were, uh, we were going to start out at a few Waitrose stores last year. And we had to have some really, really interesting chats with them about uh, about where the product sits and with the Food Standards Agency. And so we actually have an 18 on the pack and it uh, beeps at the checkout. <laughs> and on Amazon, you have to show ID. I mean, you know, it's Amazon, they just sort of leave it. But you have to be over 18 to purchase. Yeah, these, are, these have got... Uh, a serious amount of alcohol, 9.5%. And even when you cook it, you're still uh, left left with enough to give you that waft of heat in the throat. Um, because, yeah, it's, I think it's needed. 
you know, a Bloody Mary with vodka, <laughs> tequila slammer, the Prosecco and apple, and they're lush. Um, and 9.5% is, is actually the magic number. We couldn't get any more in because after that, um, the meat and the protein starts to disintegrate a bit. And this was, we just managed to get to 9.5 and it, literally any milliliter over that wouldn't work. So we were cock a hoop. Okay, just take us back. Where was this um, experimental uh, science taking place? Where was the laboratory? Were you literally pouring Bloody Mary mixture into a Magimix filled with sausage meat? How did you actually create these things? Where did this happen? So I've had a slightly random uh, career going from a rugby in my teenage years to the natural transition to musical theatre. Um and then dancing around the West End for a while, random. And then um, I set up a coffee company making compostable coffee capsules for Nespresso machines, sold everything, moved in with my parents, had no girlfriend, no life, no money. And I was like, naturally, I should make sausages at the weekend to keep myself out of trouble. Um, and it just started as a hobby in the kitchen. Oh, God, it's so strange saying it out loud. And... And then I, I, I was trying other flavours and that's when I got the idea of of doing some boozy bangers and making big sausages that stick out your hot dog. And then I started making them pretty much every weekend using really, really good quality meat. That was the thing. I was looking in the supermarket at some meat content on um, sausages. I was like, how is this a sausage if it's got 42% pork in it? That's not a sausage, that's a lie. I'm eating a lie. <laughs> and then I was like, I went to local butcher and said, can you teach me how to make sausages? And he said, no, go away. Buy some sausage meat and just put it through a sausage machine. It's easy. It's not easy. He was lying. Um, yeah, and I started making them at the weekends. And then my sisters uh, were like, oh, can you can you give me a few kilos, a few more kilos? And then I found out my sisters were selling them. Um, I was like, oh, okay. So this is probably a little business. Had to park it for about... Well, so you hang on a second. Your sisters were selling your sausages and making a turn without you knowing? Yeah, they were going into work going, oh, my brother makes these vodka sausages. Do you want some? <laughs> They're like, yeah. And I was like, this is outrageous. Um, but my sisters are all, you know, pretty smarter and more dynamic than me. So no surprise. Yeah. And then uh, the the coffee company Halo went quite well. And then uh, my wife said to me a couple of years ago, what What do you want to do next? And I was like, oh, do you know what? I've got, I, I like creating things that need to exist. Hang on, you you went from living with your parents without a girlfriend, making sausages, and then suddenly you had a wife. Yes, yes, fortunately. Um, so this, this sausage thing has been on the, you know, back burner, so to speak, for a while. Yeah. Now that it's real, I assume you've you've set up a new home with your wife. You're not still living with, with your parents. No. Um. But I am there now. How is the production going? <laughs> oh, you're you're yeah. back at your parents, right? Okay. Um, how is the production now? And um, what quali- what uh, quantity are we talking about? Have you got a small food factory at the back of uh, you know in a shed? W- what's happening now? No, we're 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 super super lucky. Um, so my my wife's actually a doctor, and she was uh, frontline on COVID. And we combined that with having our first child. And we were sort of stuck in Germany for a while, because she's half German, half Brazilian. So it was all very difficult for the last uh, uh, couple of years. But during that period, we've got some some friends who've got an amazing farm in Essex who make sausages. And we 
we started working with them and then getting into the technicalities of creating a sausage that we can make consistently and getting all the ingredients sorted and never compromising on anything. So we work really closely with the farm. We only use the, the, the best pork. And now we're producing upwards of, I think, 100 kilos of, of each flavor a week and selling it online and uh, through the Amazon. We started supplying each 17 and a few other wholesalers. But I think the most amazing thing is um, 70% of people who buy, buy again. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like, yeah, I, I bought it, loved it. And now I'm in again. And now the sun's out, the bangers are out. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a very good statistic. Um, so on the barbecue, um, what sizzles best? Um, is it a tequila slammer um, banger or is it a Prosecco and apple? Does a Bloody Mary banger go best on the barbecue? Um, tell us about that. Now, the Bloody Mary, because we use um, tomato pieces to get the uh, that, that beautiful consistency that's that's got a bit of spice in it that's that's lovely if you if you uh if you like a banger but not too hot but something a little bit different and then the tequila i've come to have a love affair with the tequila at the moment because i've just started doing them in chipolatas and um i've put on about a kilo since we started making them they're freakishly moorish uh, and they've got a real kick because they're real jalapeno in there and there's a worldwide shortage of tequila at the moment thanks hollywood which is making it possibly because you've put the uh, what is remaining in your sausages. This is true. This is true. I'm I'm worried that uh, I need to start freezing them and investing for the future with sausage stocks. So, um, is there any competition emerging? Are you the only uh, sausage entrepreneur putting booze in your bangers, or is there anyone else anywhere else in the world doing it? There must be some. There must be some crazy people in the states doing this, injecting booze into their sausages. I think I own the madness at the moment. I think we are no, we are the only company using this level of alcohol. Other people put a little bit in or do it as a one-off, but we looked at sausages and the market, and we were like, "This is so boring, so dull. Let's create something really fun, but high, high quality." And you know, we're just getting going. I can't wait to put the bourbon on and the rum. And we've got a, a Coco van as well. So, we're the, yeah, we're the only ones out there with these sort of sausages for grown-ups. Well, listen, um, people can buy directly from dickiesbangers.com. Um, well, let's hope that um, of all the careers you've had, that sausage magnate is the one that sticks on the uh, the top of your obit on your tombstone in years to come. <laughs> surpassing all other endeavours that you've done uh, and that uh, or that it doesn't all collapse and you end up living back with your parents, dreaming up some new career, Dickie. No, this is... Uh, we're on our way to building a sausage empire. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And emboldened by 9.5% booze. Um, Dickie Keyswick, it's been an absolute joy to have you. Head banger of Dickie's Bangers on Biting Talk. All the best and the very best of luck. And um, if your PR hasn't, you need to dispatch some of these ones to me, please. I'll have a big banger bundle for the weekend. No problem. No problem. I'm sure you'll enjoy those. It's always a joy to deliver people the sausage they deserve. (laughs) (laughs) Dickie Keswick, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thanks. 
Now, for 30 years, my next guest has been opening restaurants. He has a severe bout, I suppose, of what you might call restaurateuritis. He can't stop opening places. He's got gaffes across London. He's got Jerusalem. He's got opium, Burlock, Salvador and Amanda. And having recovered from COVID, he's going to celebrate uh, the opening of his next establishment by dishing out free food and drink to NHS staff. But it's a warm welcome to Eric Yu from The Breakfast Group. Hi, Eric. Hi, William. How are you? I'm very well. It's lovely to have you on the show. Congratulations on 30 years. That's quite a feat. Congratulations from in recovering from COVID. Thank you. Um, remind us about the origins of, of the breakfast group, because uh, if I'm right, you don't actually serve breakfast in any of your establishments. No, no, we don't, William. But, you know, when I first started for the Stefano, September 1991, when we bought it and whatever else, and... Uh, it was very much a late night establishment, very much a, a party sort of venue, open 6am. is where DTPM first started, which is, as you know, a Sunday afternoon gay club. So it's very much a party place, and, and, and that's what I actually did. So from that, I then did uh, a place called uh, Bar Rumba, uh, which is still there on Chastry Avenue. And I did Saint, and I did Substation, so, 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 so which is uh, a gay venue. and and all late night places and, 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 you know, but the thing that hung them all together was that when we all finished work, we all went for breakfast and that's why I decided to call it the breakfast group because it's such a disparate sort of like group of venues and, but, but one thing we all had in common is very much, uh, you know, when we finished work, we all went for breakfast. So I thought we called it the breakfast group. Yeah. Well, that sounds very sensible. Across the 30 years, what are the big changes you've noticed in, in habits, be it eating, drinking or staying out late? What are the what are the things that you've noticed have most radically changed? Well, I mean, there's been many, many changes, William. I mean, I think to me, maybe it's just myself and, and me getting older, but, but I've definitely noticed that people are much more into quality now. You know, they're, they're starting to sort of like, you know, understand differences between good food and bad food good drinks, bad drinks, good cocktails, bad cocktails, and, you know, whether they actually fully understand or not, but, but they're trying to sort of like, you know, uh, get into this American habit of sort of like calling spirits, that sort of stuff. So so I think that, that that's probably the one overriding principle is that um, as a nation, I think we're, we're getting into quality products now. Yeah. And in terms of making money, is it easier to make money when people are fussy or more sticklers for for good produce, or is it harder? Can you make greater margins if there's great quality, or is it much easier when you were, so to speak, you know, stacking them high and selling them cheap? Uh, I, I personally think there's money to be made in either situation with him, to be honest. Uh, and, and we made very good money back in the day. We still make decent money now, but, but we, we apply very different for because of me, I suppose, and, and, and the fact that, you know, I don't really want to be standing sort of like under, under the arches listening to some sort of music I don't quite understand anymore because of my age at six o'clock in the morning. So, 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 so I, I, I now play a very different furrow. I now play a very different furrow now and, uh, and I concentrate on quality now, quality food, quality drink, but particularly quality drink because, I mean, if you talk about making money, that, that, that in my opinion, is where, where the money is. And what about quality sleep? Hmm. Um, you know, because <laughs> that, that's, that, that must have... I mean, do you permanently have jet lag or are you still sleeping kind of back to front to people like me who uh, 
go to bed and uh, at night and get up in the morning? No, no. I mean, it's a great question, William. It's a very, very good question for me personally. Uh, but, but you know, over time, I, I've adjusted my hours. So, you know, it used to be that I used to sort of have a little notebook of friends that, you know, we used to be finding each other three, four o'clock in the morning. And obviously, knowing full well that, you know, your mate's still going to be up and whatever else. And, you know, but, but, but now, you know, we, we're all talking now and I find it absolutely hilarious that, you know, We'll go to bed at sort of like sensible hour and, and, and wake up and we each phone each other at sort of like eight o'clock in the morning as opposed to four o'clock in the morning when, when you know, we're still sort of like knocking around so. There must have been many years when you were slightly lacking in vitamin D then. Yes, absolutely. I'm a very, very keen golfer. So so what I used to do is, is you know, use my money to sort of like fly somewhere and play some golf and get 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 my fair share of sunshine and, and, and rays and vitamin D that way so so I w- wouldn't particularly feel sorry for me William. <laughs> no I'm not feeling sorry for you I'm just inter- no, I'm just you. interested in in that that lifestyle I mean I mean I'm 51 and uh, I'm exhausted if I, if I don't get a perfect night's sleep and I feel um you know crotchety all day um were, were you a, a nightclub boss who was always in a good mood even though your sleep patterns may have been rather, you know, strange. Yeah, I, I'd say that it takes a lot to sort of like throw me off kilter, and uh, you know, I think that that's something that's very, very important. That you know, you've always got sort of like I always say that you shouldn't actually drink too much in within your own premises, just in case things get a bit out of hand. And to control that sort of scenario, I used to drive a lot, so so that that's something from from drinking and. Uh, uh, and 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 that's what you used to come up. Eric, come and come and join us for a drink. I said, I'm really sorry, but I can't. I said, oh, well, why not? Why not? And I said, I'm driving. And 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 most of it, they'd understand. Leave you alone at that point. But uh, that's what I used to do. That's what I used to do. So yeah, because it is the great affliction of those who are in that business. Some some of whom I know well are clean and serene, and that's having indulged too much and joined the punters on the other side of the bar. So. It is a it, it it is a dangerous lifestyle. It's a dangerous job because you're always going to be lured in. I mean, you know, if you're if you're organising parties, it's quite hard not to be part of the party. I expect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the problem comes not just obviously alcohol. There are other things that that that, that are are tempting you and uh, they trip you up and whatever else. But uh, you know, I was fortunate enough that yeah, I, I suppose my home life and the fact that uh, you know maybe I'm slightly more sensible uh, helped me along the way and, and, and I really enjoy a good drink I really enjoy a good drink but that's about as far as it's, it's got so so all the other all the other attractions of being a nightclub owner or a bar owner goes into early hours of the morning I, I managed to stay well away from so and, 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 and alcohol I still love to this day but you know only in moderation. Yeah, well, I, I, I believe you. Now, listen, um, you, you had COVID quite badly in um, the last uh, few months. While you were um, recovering, you conceived of your latest project, um, The Last Talisman in Bermondsey Street. Tell us a bit about that. What was the great brainwave that you had while those uh, demon bugs were attacking every part of your body? Well, I mean, it wasn't particularly last talisman I just promised to myself that when I came out of hospital and and at the end of this pandemic the Brexit could be stronger than than, than it was when, when it entered the pandemic and, and I think I'm well on my way to achieving that 
part of that is, is obviously the last talisman we found at Bermondsey Street. We decide that you know all our places we've got eight places, nine places now in total, and uh, uh, and, and eight of them are sort of like very much in the West End, London. And, and I just said that we just need somewhere that that's a bit more residential, etc., etc. Et so. So I mean, I live in in Wapping near Tower Bridge. So, so Bermondsey Street is absolutely perfect for me. I can walk to 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 the Last Talisman. But uh, the Last Talisman came about because the name reflects you know, the fact that um, you know we all need a bit of luck now. You know, we all need sort of like you know, Last Talisman coming and look over us and, and make sure we're okay. Now, now I, I was sat in the hospital and it was like good fortune or whatever, but, but I came out of it, but I, I spent 12 days in the hospital, okay. And I came away and I said, there's two things I've got to do. One is make sure the brain script's stronger, as I said. So, so it will be, because there's last husband, and, and then I'm also opening next week a, a place here in Soho called uh, Martinez, which is private members cocktail club. And the other thing I promised myself that I'd do something for 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 the NHS well because I just felt so embarrassed that you know they're, they're these these wonderful wonderful people uh, looking after us and 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 risking their lives coming to work every day smiling their face and and I just thought you know for all, all tea in China you know it's just like uh, and you realise that they're not paid that much money either and and. and all they get is like clapping somebody's doorstep and you know one percent pay rise and it's just it's just embarrassing so 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 i promised myself i'd do something about that as well so 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 to get their free drinks what do they have to how do you stop imposters dressing up as nurses or doctors trying to get free drinks at the last talisman uh well i think my my, my daughter's a doctor um, and she works for the nhs and i think they've got um ID passes, obviously. So, 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 so that, that, that's the one thing. But uh, well, what I'm going to do, William, if you're interested, is that I'm going to take the, the last Sunday in August, the bank holiday Sunday in August, uh, and, and all NHS people are welcome to come to any of my venues, including last talisman, etc., etc., on that Sunday, and, and they'll partake of free food and drink again. Okay? Wow, well, that is amazing. And you hear, you heard it here first on Biting Talk. Um, Eric, that's very generous of you. Um, an amazing story. Uh, best of luck with all your new ventures. And uh, we shall follow the continued success, we hope, of the Breakfast Group with a keen interest. And uh, we wish you well and uh, get, some, get some rest, get some good sleep, Eric. I will do. I'll definitely try with him. Thanks very much. Well, the government is soon to lift restrictions and uh, who better to chat about this than the chief executive of UK Hospitality, who I think actually is my most regular guest, in fact, (laughs) over the year, because normally we have, you know, one appearance for a year. But she's back and I'm very delighted to to also congratulate the great Kate Nichols because I think it's the first time we've spoken since you got an OBE and the New Year's Honours Lists. Uh, So congratulations, Kate, and welcome back to Biting Talk. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, it is my my third time, I think, in the year. Uh, And and thank you for your kind words about the OBE, which was very unexpected. Uh, And I do see as being recognition for the whole industry of the challenge that we've had this year. Yes, it must have been a nice thing for you to get because it's been a long old slog. Um, we've discussed in the past about how you have to tread a very 
careful diplomatic line with sort of gentle prodding, being firm when you need to, keeping your keeping calm and and I suppose that OBE is a recognition of your personal qualities as well I have to say I think. Well hopefully so yes it, it is it's been a, a marathon interspersed with with a series of sprints um, and yeah I suppose the, the challenge that I always face as the representative voice is to be the voice of reason the voice of calm um, while everybody else uh, it can rage around me but um, hopefully collectively together we, we've got the industry into a much better space looking ahead to the reopening and and, and uh, reopening without those restrictions, which have caused so much pain and damage to the industry as a whole over the last year, 18 months. Yes. Now, lots of things to talk about. First of all, um, are you confident from certainly, I mean, from the press, but also from your own channels of communication that the restrictions will be lifted? One hears about, reads about wobbles. Um, are you fairly clear in your own mind that what the government has said they will do in terms of lifting most restrictions will actually go ahead um, in, a, in a few days' time? Yeah, yes, I am. I think that there was sort of a few wobbles last week after the Prime Minister came out and, and made a clear statement of intent. Uh, and then there were concerns. We've seen some of those concerns reflected in the final announcement that was made on Monday, uh, particularly sort of a, a greater note of caution, a greater note of personal responsibility and encouraging uh, more proactive measures to keep people safe. Um, but we are confident that now we will press ahead. The 19th of July will happen. All of the legal restrictions will fall away and then businesses will be left to, to do their own risk assessment to put in place the measures they feel appropriate to their business, their style of trading, crucially to protect their staff and, and, and then also to protect their customers. Uh, and I think what we're seeing by way of, of wobbles or uncertainties amongst uh, our ministers and, and, and politicians is reflective of this this adjustment and tension and uncertainty that a lot of us are feeling as we move out of a black and white world where there are things that you must not do and things you must do towards one which is is sort of many shades of grey uh, and we won't have the same approach being taken by everybody. Um, I think it's a very different environment that we were forecasting when we got to step four of the roadmap. Even as, as early as in middle of May, we thought that this would be a, a moment where uh, you had unalloyed celebration and it was a positive move, it, it's now coded and coated around with, with a great degree of caution simply because of the levels of cases that we are seeing. So we know that the cases are not translating through to hospitalizations and deaths, but nevertheless, the high prevalence is, is resulting in a, a more sombre and more gloomy and more cautious note from the government than we would have wanted to have when we're reopening and rebuilding consumer confidence. Mm. And the government are hoping that the, the nation, consumers will use their common sense. Um, certainly, there was not a lot of glimmer of common sense going on around a lot of football supporters who we saw on, on TV screens around Wembley and in, and in London. Do you worry for venue owners, owners of large pubs, um, that they're going to have a real battle on their hands with trying to keep customers calm and keep common sense? Because it's hard enough in normal times to to stop some sections of society getting quite rowdy in a pub. Um, 
this is a real challenge, isn't it? I think this is our big concern going forward because of the situation that we're in. The last thing anybody wants is is to end up having the industry scapegoated as it has been in the past because you you reopen, you allow a, a, a easing of restrictions and then the industry is subsequently blamed for an increase in cases. And we saw that last year, even though there was no evidence of it around eat out to help out um, being blamed uh, as, as causing spikes in cases. I think there's a very real danger of that for those people who who are um, more in favour of controls and lockdowns, uh, concerned about sort of third or fourth waves and, and, and further uh, infection levels and prevalence, and also cautious consumers. I, I think there's no doubt that the industry will be blamed. We need to try and make sure that that that, that blame is is not appropriate, not uh, applicable, um, and that, that there is every effort made to make sure that we are keeping our team safe, in particular, while we've got this high prevalence. You know, we, we are already facing labour shortages. We know that there are challenges with notifications through the app for self-isolation. That's largely driven by prevalence of cases. So we have a vested interest in keep it getting those cases down, keeping them down uh, and making sure that, that hospitality is cannot be blamed for, for any changes that happen in the pattern of the disease. How worried are you that, um, that that might indeed happen, that hospitality does get blamed because the government have a track record of, of doing it, as you say, without much statistical um, basis and that we'll have fresh lockdowns in the autumn? I think that's in the back of everybody's mind is that caution about the need for further restrictions in, in the autumn. I don't think personally that we would see any further lockdowns. Um, I think that the government is is well aware that that, that is not going to get much traction with the British public. We've been given reasons why we need to lock down in the past. The vaccine was the way out of this and the high levels of vaccination we've got should mean that even if you have an increase in cases and a significant fourth wave in the autumn, you should be able to manage without restrictions. The government has flagged that they may look at bringing back some of the restrictions in, in place um, and not ruled it out. And we need to make sure that those are the ones that are really essential for protecting public health and not the ones that cause maximum commercial pain to the industry because the industry simply wouldn't survive a fourth round of restrictions. So, so I think... Uh, we are in a much better space politically and with the ministers that we're talking to about the, the relative risks associated with unlocking, uh, the relative risks of parts of the industry that, that, that they pose in our socialisation and a better understanding of the broader risks that are caused by socialising at home, which helps to put hospitality in, in context. I think I'm also heartened by the fact that You've got a very clear statement of intent from the new health secretary that um, we do need to learn to find a way to live with this virus. It is going to be around for years. We cannot continue to put life on hold and we can't lock down the economy and put it on ice. Otherwise, we won't be able to pay for the health services we need, let alone other services. Um, and also his clear message around the need to make sure that the NHS is there to provide other services and to reflect the broader public health concerns. So, so I think that the government itself would be reluctant politically, socially, but also economically economically to go back into restrictions uh, but we need to work with them to make sure that we are doing our part to keep the 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 economy safe and to make sure that that does not happen mm. you you mentioned a moment ago um this other huge problem that there is in the in the industry about staff shortages and um uh, we've been talking that talking about that on this program um you know in this podcast week in week out what is your view about why there is such a dearth of staff? Because one might say that this is obviously a wonderful time to go into the industry because you can probably secure a good wage. There's lots of opportunities. It's an incredible uh, career to have in hospitality. It's you know, There's so many things you can go into. Um, why do you think there is this huge problem? And um, is there any glimmer of light on the horizon of 
you know, graduates probably possibly leaving university this year who might be able to get into the business? I think there, there is a glimmer of light, more than a glimmer of light. I'm quite optimistic that we will be able to, to address this going forward. And it is a huge opportunity, as you say, to have a reset moment for the industry where we change the public's perception of, of what we do, what we offer, the career promotions, and also the sort of first job opportunities for, for a lost generation. You know, you, you have these young people who've not only lost their education, but lost their social skills and their social interaction from missing 18 months worth of school or education. So, so I'm optimistic that, that hospitality can play a big part in that and the government also recognises that. So there are long-term structural issues which we need to address, but we have a short-term hump and we need help in bridging that. Um, the reasons for the current shortage are sort of, they're many and varied depending on, on which part of the country you are as to which one comes to the fore the most. Um, undoubtedly, it has been the case that the continued uncertainty and the sort of toxic that's that's floated around the industry as as being potentially um, closed down, not able to reopen, not able to to trade effectively. That level of uncertainty around whether we can reopen, when and how long will we remain open has clouded people's decision when they're looking to move to hospitality or looking to come off furlough and take back their hospitality job. And we have to remember that a large number of people who are on furlough from hospitality also have second or third jobs, um, not just on furlough, but, but naturally. So if you're making that decision of do I do I leap? Do I go now? Um, that that's un- ha- has been unhelpful because they can't be furloughed when they move to their new job. I think we're starting to see that ease. But the other reasons that we're finding it, um, I think first and foremost, we had fewer staff come back from furlough than we thought we would have as a result of this unlocking. Um, it's just 80% are returning. So one in five as a gap. And so therefore, you've got the recruitment challenge of recruiting people who left during COVID and you knew you had a gap with. But the bankers that you thought you would be able to get returning aren't there. In the London and the South East, that's largely because you've got a, a large proportion of the workforce was a non-UK national and a number of them went home, not necessarily for good, but before Christmas, certainly a lot of workers went home to spend time f- with family and have subsequently fallen foul of travel restrictions. And they simply can't get back in. They can't afford to do the self-isolation um, and the travel policy doesn't allow them to come back in. So we have got a shortfall, about 1.5 million um, non-UK workers left the UK during COVID. Half of those were in London. London and a significant proportion will be in the hospitality sector. And even if businesses didn't employ a large number of foreign workers, that shorter, smaller pool of talent is causing a, an acute shortage at the moment. So that needs to be, be looked at. But equally, one thing that's got overlooked is that we have a dislocation of UK workers large number of young people couldn't afford to stay in city centres during the Covid crisis, went back home, didn't want to isolate in cities on their own or furlough on their own. Uh, and so they're not in their normal place of work. Equally, our student population, which would normally be quite a vibrant, dynamic, uh, movable population of, of workers, they're not returning to work at the moment. And if they are, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time because they haven't been at university. And then finally, clearly, for when we look at our talent pipeline, we've had a big focus on, on A-levels and o levels and GCSEs that have been disrupted, but equally our vocational training uh, uh, courses have been disrupted. So you're not getting for 18 months, two years, you're not getting chefs coming out of catering college, hospitality colleges have been disrupted, a large proportion of vocational training that relies upon in-work training, again, disrupted. So you don't have that talent pipeline coming through to fill those shortages. So there are some long-term structural issues that we need to work through with the government um, to to look at, at making sure that it's an effective career of choice. 
and really pleased to see that the government for the first time through DWP is doing a hospitality recruitment campaign to make those points that you, you made so eloquently at the start about the range, the breadth of careers that we offer, the progression that you can get through the industry, the fact that it's an ultimate meritocracy, and also picking up on, on something that I was really taken by when I went over to the States. Um, you know, M- McDonald's uh, did a big campaign saying that they were the, the nation's uh, best first job. Um, and it was picked up by Joe Biden recently in his jobs plan, talking about hospitality as being the best first job. I think we have a huge opportunity with a, a generation of young people that have struggled through education, socialization, missing out on opportunities to reinforce that message that if you want transferable skills that employers are looking at wherever you want to end up in your career, starting in hospitality is the best place for you. And I wonder, Kate, if you were looking at that industry and that the world was your oyster, what job would you go for? What would you be? A baker, mixologist, restaurateur, publican? What would you go Ooh, for? Goodness, I would be really torn because I, I do love um, cooking. I find that a real stress reliever. I'm not a chef by any stretch of the imagination, but that sort of production chef, uh, I find really soothing and and, and uh, I enjoy working in those environments. But I'd be really torn with being wanting to be front of house and being in cons- uh, being with with customers. So so if I had the skills, I'd really like to be a sommelier or a restaurant manager. But I'm nowhere near skilled enough to be able to do e- I, any of those three jobs I've just listed. I'm, I'm sure that your it's your uh, your alternative career plan, your retirement job, a little place by the sea. There you are, welcoming people in and and, and occasionally allowing yourself to to cook. Perhaps that's uh, a, a way forward. Listen. Kate, it's been wonderful to catch up with you. Thank you so much for, uh, for for sharing all that knowledge and lowdown with us. And it's been wonderful having you on Biting Talk. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me back on. Look forward to joining you again when, when we're fully open and, and we're back in, the, in what is normal, not the new normal. Dearest listener, you know that Biting Talk comes to you, at you, with two chicks, two chicks, effortless eggs, Whiz whiz them up. They get all frothy. Send that froth over to Farhead Heydari, the Biting Talk mixologist, and he will have a very practical use for it, as he will now explain. Hi, Farhead. Welcome to the show. Thanks, William. I mean, uh, yes, we are going to be doing cocktails, but... You know, it's it's a weather forecast as well because that trough in the jet stream and the attendant low pressure systems that were anchored off the coast, it really doesn't matter which coast, have been shunted to the near continent. And you know what that means for us? No isobars on the map, but plenty of sunshine. And that's exactly what our cocktail is going to be. It's going to call for a special one. It's the Clover Club, which dates back to 1917 and has that wonderful ingredient that you just mentioned, those two chick liquid egg whites in it. So here's how we do it. We're going to take 60 milliliters of gin, 15 milliliters of raspberry syrup. I'm using Monin. Juice from a half a lemon. That's about 20 milliliters. And then 30 milliliters of our two chicks. And we add all of that to our trusty shaker. We will dry shake that for about 30 seconds to emulsify the ingredients. Then we add loads of ice. And should you wish, now this is an alternative, 50 grams of raspberries and 75 grams of sugar. This will ensure that our two chicks liquid egg whites are nice and foamy, which is exactly what we want. We pour all that into a frozen coop, garnish with a few raspberries, and boom! That's your Clover Club. It's a gin-based cocktail that's a little sour in style. And that is your two-minute biting talk recipe, Mr. Sitwell. (laughs) 
Thank you, Farhad. Now, you put booze into cocktails. Would you put alcohol into a sausage? Uh, yes, indeed. I, do. I would. Absolutely. People put, or- put, people put orange liqueur into chocolate. Why not? Okay, well, there's thumbs up from you to uh, Dickie's Bangers. So thank you for that. Oh, absolutely. I'll be, they'll, they'll be absolutely delicious. You know, we could, we, we, could, we could railroad a few and see if we can come up with a bit of a buzz. <laughs> uh, thanks for the weather forecast. <laughs> I hope that you have sunscreen on your pate. <laughs> uh, yeah, and some scalp powder to reduce the glare. Yeah, there's a lot of shine. There's quite a sheen. It's like you, I can sense that you've been buffing your your baldness. Absolutely, on the golf course, no less. You should uh, massage some of that delicious two chicks froth into your head. Who knows? You might sprout some follicles. <laughs> I wouldn't hold my breath or place a bet on that. <laughs> Farhad Hedari from the house of Hedari. Live and direct and on sparkling form. You're a complete legend. We'll see you next time. Looking forward to it, William. All the best. Thank you, Farhad. That's all we have time for. Biting Talk comes to you with two chicks, quality free-range egg whites in a carton, effortless eggs for dreamy cakes, souffles, omelettes and drinks. My thanks to producers Front Ear. I'm William Setwell. Goodbye. Goodbye.